We're so grateful that you came out to the house of the Lord. We are in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, and it is full of good stuff. I mean, it is powerful, and uh, we're going to enjoy it. It's easy to find, last book in your Bible. It is between the book of Jude and your everlasting future. Amen. And how many know that we do have an everlasting future? And I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Revelation chapter 11. I'm just going to read two verses, but we're going to see how much of this chapter we can do today. I don't know that we'll get through all of it, but I'll give you the outline of this chapter as we get started. But the first two verses says, And there was given me a reed, likened unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God. Measure the altar, and them that worship therein. Measure them that worship therein. It, you know, it's unusual that God's going to measure not only the temple, but the altar and the worshipers. I mean, no, God's measuring you up today, too. Verse 2, but the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. And 42 months is three and a half years. I want to use for a subject, and, and of course the first two verses don't give you the title of the message, but I'm going to give you the title already, because it talks about the two witnesses that were uh, killed by the beast that come out of the pit. And we'll be talking about that in a little bit. So I'm going to use for a subject this morning, Dead Prophets Day. Let me be seated. Dead Prophets Day. I am always excited when I stop and think about how close we are to the coming of Jesus Christ. In America, we're kind of in a soft spot. We're in the eye of the storm. And we don't always see through the eyes that we should see prophecy because we're cushioned here. We are in the eye of a storm. If you know anything about the eye of a storm, sooner or later, we're going to come out of it. And the storm is going to hit us. And I understand that we've already went through the first part of the eye of storm with all World War I, World War II, all the horrific things America has went through. And now we're kind of in a pause in the eye of a storm. But I'm told that the last part of the storm is much worse than the first part of the storm. Because the last part of the storm brings floods, diseases, pestilence, death, immense heartbreak and disaster. It affects the crops. It affects every area of man's life because war is, pardon the expression, hell. We need to understand that because we are kind of cushioned in the United States, we're kind of in the eye of the storm. It's quite in the eye of the storm. Many times we ignore what is happening overseas, or we ignore what is transpiring in prophecy in the past, present, and future. We're told in the first two verses of this chapter 11, that John was given a reed. Now, that reed is something like a tall, hollow reed that would grow in the Nile, Egyptian Nile, or grow in the Jordan River. Uh, John, there may have been some reeds on the island of Patmos where he was at. I don't know. It usually grows in marshy water. But I'm sure the angel knew just where to pick that reed, an angel brings a reed to John and says, now I want you to measure whether that reed was six foot, 10 foot, I don't know, but how many know the reed doesn't grow once it's cut? So it's gonna stay the same length. And so he has given instruction to measure the temple. Now, I guess the question would be, what temple? Israel does not have a temple right now. So that means that Someday, Israel will have a temple. 
It is called the third temple. Some call the temple of, of Solomon the first and the temple of Zerubbabel the second and the temple of Herod the third, but that's not true. Uh, Herod actually stole the temple of Zerubbabel, kind of remodeled it, made it bigger for, because he wanted to make a name for himself. So the, this temple that's going to be built in the future, perhaps before we're taken as a church to meet the Lord in the air, perhaps after we're taken, I don't know, but the one thing I know for sure, the Bible says that John was ordered to measure the temple. So we know by that a temple is coming. And it's interesting that John is told, don't just measure the temple, but measure the altar and the worshipers. And I think it's so important that we understand that when God measures, he measures our attitudes and our worship and our spirit in which we live. Amen? My mom used to tell me, stand up straight, young man. What was mom doing? She was measuring me. And when we droop around, you know, and, and God doesn't want that. He wants his children to get together and praise him and worship him. Now, I realize that he's talking here in the 11th chapter to Jewish people. This is Israel. This is not the church. In fact, the church is not even in this chapter 11. Church is already home with Jesus Christ in heaven. But let me give you the outline of the chapter real quickly, and then we're going to get into some really good stuff. Verse 1 and 2 is the Jewish temple that's going to be built soon and very soon. Verses 1 through 13 is the two witnesses. And we'll get into that in just a little bit later on in the message. The third section is verse 15 through 19, and it talks about the seven trumpet sounds. Now, a lot of people get confused with the seven trumpet sounding, thinking that that's the end. You know, that's when the church will be caught up, and that'll be the end of all things at the time of the seven trumpet. But you've got to understand that out of the seventh seal came the seven trumpets, and out of the seventh trumpet come seven more vials, bowls of the wrath of God. Two woes has already took place. Another woe is on the way right after the blowing of the seventh trumpet. But we need to understand that this is not the trump of God. And we'll pick this up later on. This is a trump of an angel. An angel blows the trumpet. What's unique about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. What's unique is there's nothing there really saying that's a trumpet. It's saying that God's voice is like the trump of God. In the, in the first chapter of Revelation, it talks about his voice, God's voice being like a trumpet. And if you know anything about a trumpet, it's piercing. Amen? If you're, if you're wherever in, the, I mean, we're in the army. Now, I, they got something like a trumpet they would blow to get you out of bed. At least that's how they used to do it. The sergeant didn't go out or the sergeant of arms or whatever didn't go out at 3.30 in the morning to get you out of bed and, and blow on a harmonica. He blew on something like a trumpet. Why? Because it's piercing. It's attention-getting. And God is trying to get attention for planet Earth. Not attention, say, look up here, I'm going to slap your face off. That's not, that's not the kind of attention God's trying to do. A lot of people interpret the book of Revelation as God saying, look up here so I can slap your face off, trying to get your attention. That's not the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is filled not only with the wrath of God, the judgment of God, but it's filled with the grace and the mercy of God. God does everything he can to get people on board and get them saved before the world is totally annihilated. God is a good God. He's not a bad God. God's a good God. God's a saving God. God's a master of love and power and grace, but he's also holy, and God must judge because God is God. Now, 
The Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24, verse 15, that the, that the temple would be desecrated by the man of sin. And he would uh, said, when you see the uh, desolation, uh, oblation, desolation of this antichrist, this evil one in the, in the temple, then you know that it's time for you to leave. Da- and, and Jesus Christ said, that's what Daniel spoke of in chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel said there would be a, uh, a desolation, an abomination in the holy place. Paul spoke of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, that this man would claim to be God perhaps put up an idol in the temple of God and declare himself to be God. That's the desolation, the abomination desolation in the holy place. And so we know Jesus said there'll be a temple. We know that Daniel said there'll be a temple. We know that Paul says there would be a temple. At the time Paul spoke this, Titus the Roman was going to come and destroy the temple. At the time John was told to measure the temple. Titus had already destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and the temple had already been destroyed for 20 years. So at the time of measuring this temple, the temple was already destroyed for 20 years prior. And so we know that this is a new temple. This is a temple that the Jewish people are going to try to build. You say, why are they building it? Because they rejected the true Messiah, They rejected our Jesus. They rejected the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're still looking for the false Messiah because they believe once they get the temple built, their Messiah will show up, and he will show up, but he'll be the false Messiah, and that will bring to pass horrific agony in the last part of the tribulation. He'll turn against Israel. Now, um, I got some things I want to lay on you that's pretty heavy this morning, but it really helped me uh, as I was studying this. How many remember, um, well, on the, on the Temple Mount right now is the Mosque of Omar. It is the Dome of the Rock. It is a Muslim worship place. It's one of the most sacred, I think the second or third most sacred place of the Muslims that they they consider the sacred place. It was at this place, at the Dome of the Rock, that they believed that their Muhammad had rode his horse up into heaven from that spot. And so there is a smaller dome uh, south of this Dome of the Rock, which is Muslim as well. And the Dome of the Rock is sitting where many people believe the temple must be built there. Now, Scientists, archaeologists now have discovered that it's very possible that the original temple to the Jewish people is north of the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim uh, dome there. If that be the case, the Antichrist may be able to persuade them to compromise and build the temple next to the Dome of the Rock. You say, well, why don't they just blow it up? You know, and be done. Yeah, they'll blow it up. That'd be World War III immediately. And so it's very possible that the Antichrist will work, pull a few strings, and get this temple built next to the Dome of the Rock, which is actually the original slate of the rock in which the bedrock where the original temple, and that's when I say the original temple, not talking about Solomon's temple, I'm talking about Zerubbabel's temple. And there they tried to get Zerubbabel's temple in the exact spot. But I think there's a little bit of variance there, according to archaeologists. But there's something very unique about this. Remember, Josh mentioned it, I've mentioned it in sermons gone past, how God had kind of, kind of like a Jewish whistle. He was whistling the Jews home. And God would gather the Jews from all four corners of the earth and bring them back to Israel. 20 centuries have passed by and Israel was gone. They did not have a nation. They did not have, uh, you know, they were scattered across the world in different nations. God brought them back together. And the first time in history, there has never been a nation before lose their position 
for any length of time and then come back as a nation again. Once they're gone, they're gone. Never been a nation to do that. Yet the Israel came back and became a nation, kept their dialect, kept their Hebrew, kept their language, the Greek, the Latin, and the Hebrew, kept their language and came back to Israel, bought up as much land as they could possibly buy, and there on that little spot, there at the Temple Mount in Little Jerusalem, they, they've gathered and huddled there to worship their God, and there's something like eight million Jews over there now, and it was just a handful. 1948, Harry Truman cast a deciding vote that Israel would be recognized as a state, as a nation in 1948. But the problem was in 1948, Israel was there, but they were like a child. The nations were controlling them. The, the United Nations controlling them and the Muslims controlling them. And the Arabs decided when I was 14 years old, I was 14 years old. I was more interested in my Steenray bicycle. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't looking. My, my eyes wasn't looking. But when I was 14 years old, in 1967, came the Six-Day War, Israel against the Arabians. In that six days, Israel killed over 20,000 Arabians. Only 800 of their people would, died. The Arabian world was shocked. How could this little bitty speck on the map called Israel kill over 20,000 soldiers? I mean, and they were armed to the teeth. It was a miracle from God. I was 14 years old when that took place, and there was something very unique that happened during that time. The minister of defense of Israel, his name was Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan. That was his name. He was a minister of defense. Some of you maybe remember this. And they took the Dome of the Rock. I mean, they took the, the Temple Mount. Israel did. Israel took the Temple Mount. It was theirs. It was theirs to control. It was theirs to have. But Moshe, Diana, with a few other persuasions, gave the Dome, the Temple Mount, back to the control of the Muslims. And to this day, there is not a portrait in Israel of Moshe Dayan. To this day, there is not a statue of Moshe Dayan. Why? Because the Jewish people realized that that was one of the biggest mistakes they ever made. But hold on. That wasn't a mistake. God intended for that to be so. Because it says, don't measure the outer court. That's given to the Gentiles. And in the end of the tribulation, the Gentiles will overtake the temple. But John in his measuring was told not to measure the outer court because that's given to the Gentiles. We're still in the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles are right now. We as a church are gathering at the times of the Gentiles. The church is made up of the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is different than the times uh, of the, uh, the, the fullness of the Gentiles is different than the times of the Gentiles. Um, let me correct that. The fullness of Gentiles. The church is the fullness of the Gentiles. Well, when you say something's full, what does it mean? If I say a glass is full, what does it mean? You know, the Bible talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. If something's full, if the glass is full, what does it mean? It means the glass is full. And when the church is full, the fullness of the Gentiles, according to Romans chapter 11, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church will be caught home. 
But the times of the Gentiles will continue on because in the future they will overtrod the city and the temple and bring great havoc at the end of the great tribulation. Now, we come to the two witnesses. And I know some of you are sitting there saying, oh, wow. Preacher, you're going to talk about who they are. Well, let me first say this before I start aggravating some of you. Let me first say this before I irritate, just frustrate some of you to the max. Does it really matter? I mean, you maybe won't agree with me in a little bit. I don't know why, but we'll be able to go back tonight and have pie and ice cream. And we'll be friends. We may have to get together and sing, why can't we be friends? Why can't we be friends? But the truth is, we need to understand that the, the two witnesses, God is basically saying, I'm not going to be without a witness, two witnesses. And so these two witnesses, and there's debate as to whether or not they're at the first part of the Great Tribulation or whether they're at the last part. If you remember, I said here a while back that it could be that they'll split it in two. It'll, it won't be just at the first part or the last part. It'll be in the middle of it. But whatever time is, it's three and a half years. But after I've studied it a little more and digest this chapter 11 a little more, I lean to the fact that the two witnesses will actually show up at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. There's a couple of reasons why I believe this. Number one, I believe this because they're going to be able to have power over plagues these two witnesses. They're going to be able to turn water into blood. They're going to be able to send pestilence. Fire is going to come out of their mouth. They're going to have all power over plagues and disease, pestilence. And the question is, if the two witnesses show up at the end or the middle of the great tribulation, who will know whether they did it or some demon did it? flying to the air. Who would know? I mean, there's plagues everywhere in the Great Tribulation, earthquakes and devastation and volcano eruptions and, and disease and war and famine. How are they going to know? But in the first part, they definitely would know if some guy's breathing fire out of his mouth. They definitely would know if somebody was bringing pestilence. And so I lean to that. Another reason I lean to the fact that maybe the two witnesses will be at the first part of the Great Tribulation is because they will be a great instrument to lead the 144,000 to Christ. But not just that, and I mentioned that the 144,000 could be won by, you know, the leftovers that are left here and people getting saved after the rapture of the church because people will still be saved after the church is gone. But another reason I believe, he, he gives figures twice here. Notice in verse 2, he says, they will have 42 months, which is 43 and a half years. They will, uh, it said the Gentiles will, uh, will go over the holy city. They shall tread underfoot 42 months. Then it says another in verse 3, and I will give power to the two witnesses. They shall prophesy 1,203 score days. And they will be in sackcloth, and um, these are the two olive trees, the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. And you read about the two olive trees and candlesticks in Zechariah chapter 4. But notice he gives the figures, 42 months in verse 2, three and a half years. Then he gives 203 score days in verse 3, which is also three and a half years. You said, that don't add up, preacher. That's no way that that's three and a half years. It is if you're going by a Babylonian calendar. The Babylonian calendar was 360 days, not 365 like us. And so he's, the Bible intentionally is given 42 months and also these days, three and a half years, the question is, why is he repeating it twice and once he's repeating it a little bit different? Because I believe he's separating the overtrodden of the Gentiles from the two witnesses. Now, that, if that didn't thoroughly uh, confuse you, I'll try something else in a minute. I can tell by looking at you saying, what? Does it really matter? Well, it matters to them poor suckers in front of the waiting wall preaching. Two witnesses. 
two witnesses. There, we better read this because uh, this will get beautiful in just a little bit. Verse 3, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days in Babylon calendar. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth, meaning mourning, repentance. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of earth. This You can find that in Zechariah chapter 4. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. Boy, you talk about bad breath. And devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven and it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, let me say this, every Christian that works for God is indestructible till God is through with them. When it's time for you to go home, you'll go home. When it's time, well, I just want to die. That's not your choice. God decides when you're going to die. I've done decided I'd rather live. Amen. But God chooses when we leave. And when these two witnesses are completed, then they, the Bible says that, verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. That's another reason I believe they'll be at the, last, at the first part of the Great Tribulation because the beast comes out in the middle of the Great Tribulation. So they're going to be killed by the beast. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And I'll bring that out in just a little bit. Where also our Lord was crucified. You say, well, what's he talking about? The Bible says spiritually it's called Sodom and Egypt. But it's a place where our Lord was crucified. That means it's Jerusalem. And they are the people and kindreds and tongues and, and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Dead prophets day. This is dead prophet watch. And after three days... And a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood up upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. That's a huge earthquake. The city is Jerusalem. And in the earthquake there was of Men, 7,000, that means renowned men. That means important men were killed. 7,000, there was more than 7,000 killed. And were frightened and gave glory to God of, uh, in heaven. The, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, uh, if there's anything that will terrify you, um, it is an earthquake. And when the earthquake, I mean, when God's getting down to the nitty-gritty, he usually accompanies with an earthquake. God just seems to shift the dirt, the rocks under our feet when he really wants to get our attention. And this earthquake came when the two witnesses were caught up to, the, to be with the Lord. Now, immediately someone's going to say, well, that's when the church is going to be taken up. No mention of the church here. No mention of the church here at all. And it, it's not saying it's God's trumpet. It says an angel blows it. Sound. He sounds. We know that it's not God's trumpet. It was one of the. It was a seven trumpet. The sound. Now, you, I want to point out some things because it's important that you see that this world is just as damnable and just as degenerate, just as hellish, just as wicked, just as putrefying as, as it's ever been. You know, we read, we read about history where Caesars and Roman Nero burned Christians alive at the stake, and we think, well, you know, they were so barbaric back then. They're barbaric now. We're kind of Christian in the U.S., but they're barbaric now. And, I, you know, in the big cities of America, they're barbaric there. But, but um, 
you say, well, that seems strange that these two witnesses will be killed, then they'll lay in the street and no one will bury them. They'll just lay there for three and a half days. And preachers 20 years ago or 30 years ago didn't know how that would happen. How could all the world see these dead bodies on the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days? How could that happen? And now, hello, cell phone, age of technology. The whole world could watch those two men dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. The cameras won't move. They're, they're, they've got the dead prophet watch going on. They hated these prophets. That's another reason I believe it's the first part of the Great Tribulation because uh, these prophets were interrupting their sin affairs and their wicked affairs. And so um, these two witnesses are killed. They lay in the street. They're not buried. You say, well, why did they... Why don't they bury them? I think they don't bury them because they know they buried one guy a little over 2,000 years ago, and that didn't work out well. His name was Jesus Christ. And so I think they were cautious about burying these two guys, lest, you know, something come up out of the grave. And so they keep the camera on them. This is a dead prophet watch. And all of a sudden, after three Days and a half, these two witnesses stand on their feet. How many know that take the party sails out of your wind? Or the wind out of your party sails? I got that backwards. Of course, when you're drunk, you don't know what the wind or the sails. But anyway, the Bible says they would party when these two men died. They, They had parties. They would send gifts back to each other. And they would celebrate. Now, let me say this. You think, oh, that wouldn't happen today. It won't. When, when 9-11 hit America, the, the Muslim world celebrated. In fact, they still celebrate that it's a holiday, a, a, a national day of rejoicing. Well, we look at it as a day of grief and sorrow. So, well... They won't leave dead bodies in the street. Really, stop and think about it. 2010. In 2010, Bangladesh, Somalia, a U.S. soldier was dragged to the streets of Somalia, Bangladesh, naked. And they rejoiced over the death of our U.S. soldier. Don't tell me that they're not barbaric. They are. And they have not changed. They take pictures of cutting people's heads off. Take a knife and slowly cut the head off of someone because they claim to be a Christian. That's the world we live in. We're cushioned here in America. But the world we live in is barbaric. It's hideous. It's evil. It's wicked. And when these two witnesses show up, they're going to announce that God is going to judge, that God is not satisfied. By the way, when they measured the temple, that wasn't measuring it to build it. It was already built. It was being measured to destroy it. That third temple isn't a praise the Lord thing. That third temple is an insult to the blood of Jesus Christ. That third temple is an insult to Jesus Christ. God says Jesus, his son, died once and for all on the cross of Calvary, shed his blood once and for all. He's a priest that ever liveth. And once and forever, he paid the price for our sins. And when the Jewish people begin to build a temple to offer sacrifices, it is an insult to God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ. So when the measuring's being done, it's not being done to build the temple. The temple's already built. It's being measured because God is going to cause that temple to be destroyed. Now, let's get to the two witnesses just for a minute. The preacher the Bible says when the two witnesses are caught up into heaven, there's an earthquake, and it certainly gets everybody's attention. And it's called the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe cometh quickly. The seventh trumpet is about to sound. An angel is about to sound the seventh trumpet. But I guess the question would be, and everybody wants to know, well, who is the two witnesses? 
And as I said at the start, does it really matter? And of course, really it doesn't matter. That pie and ice cream will taste good either way. But it does matter to the two witnesses. And it matters to me because I'm kind of curious. Who are the two witnesses? Well, Malachi chapter 3, the last chapter of Malachi, the last five verses said that one of those boys will be Elijah. Jesus Christ said in Mount Transfiguration that John came in the spirit of Elijah, but John the Baptist said himself he was not Elijah. And Jesus Christ said himself that John the Baptist was not Elijah. Jesus Christ said himself that Elijah must come. But if you can receive it, he's already come through the spirit. John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah. A forerunner to the Elijah coming to forerun the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Elijah's coming. Even the Jewish people today believe in that. When they have their, their Seder, when they have their, uh, their time of of feast, uh, uh, they always put an extra chair out and always have a drink out there. And nobody touches the drink because that belongs to Elijah. Nobody sits in that chair because that chair belongs to Elijah. So the Jewish people are expecting Elijah to come back. Now, let me tell you, friends, if I'm sitting down to supper and Elijah shows up in my living room, I'm going to let him sit where he wants to sit. Because what I read about Elijah, he's pretty tough cookie. I mean, he's a pretty rough prophet. It just says of him, no genealogist when he shows up with Ahab, he's called Elijah the Tishbite. He's not called Elijah the Cushion. He's Elijah the Tishbite. I've never been bit by a Tishbite, but I'm sure that being bit by a Tishbite is very painful because it's probably Elijah. Amen. So we know that the first witness is Jesus said it would be Elijah. Uh, Malachi says it would be Elijah. The Jewish people knows it's Elijah. It's just a going. We know that the first witness is Elijah. Now, the second one. Now remember in Zerubbabel Temple, in in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah saw a picture of the two olive trees and the and the candlestick, and it declared that two people were the two olive trees or the candlesticks. Those two people in Zechariah 4 is Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, there are some people that believe that the two witnesses here will be Zerubbabel and Joshua. Others believe that it will be Elijah and John, and John on the Isle of Patmos because John was told in the 10th chapter after eating a little book, he would have more to do. So they think it's John on the Isle of Patmos with Elijah. Others say, well, no, it's got to be Elijah and Enoch because Enoch never died and Elijah never died. So it's got to be Elijah and Enoch. Well, that's your only reasoning, then you don't have real strong reasoning there because I want to show you something that's very important. This would be a good time to unknock everybody. Everybody in this room needs to be unknocked. You need to pronounce it Enoch or Enoch. You need Enoch. Everybody in this room needs to be Enoch because If you just think that Enoch is the witness, then you're missing something much more precious in the Scriptures by just saying, well, it's appointed unto men once to die in Hebrews 9, verse 27, then after this, the judgment. You're missing something very precious because not until you are Enoch will you really know the beauty of Enoch. Enoch is not just something that we think He's a man, he comes back, and that's it. No, Enoch is much richer than that. Enoch lived before the flood. Enoch was the daddy of Methuselah. Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, 969 years old. 
But when Enoch had Methuselah, a little boy, the Bible says Enoch walked with God. This is in the fifth chapter of Genesis. And so Enoch walks with God. He loves God. He serves God. And that begins the story of Enoch. He's before the flood. He's the seventh from Adam. Number seven means completeness, fullness. He's the seventh from Adam. He is, Enoch walks with God, and he's taken. Let's look at the three things it says about Enoch, because I'd like for you to really be Enoch today. I want you to be Enochilated. Anyway, whatever this is. Genesis 5, 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay? Hebrews eleven five. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him before his translation. For before this translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And then in Jude verse 14, it says, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands. There's an S on the end of thousands, meaning millions of people. The Lord's going to come back with ten thousands of his saints. I'm going to be one of them. You can be one of them. He's going to come back with angels are not saints. Redeemed people are saints. And so we'll be coming back with Jesus. And Enoch speaks of the second return of Jesus Christ with his saints. Those, uh, chapter 5 of Genesis, Hebrews 11, uh, 5, Jude, verse 14, in the King James Bible, your canon of Scripture, that's all we know about Enoch. But what we see here is incredible. Because if you think that one of the two witnesses is just Enoch, Elijah and Enoch, you're missing something far more precious. Here's what I want you to see. Enoch is a type and a picture of the catching away of the church. Enoch is a picture of people who will never die, that will be translated into the presence of God to never die and to never go through the flood of God's wrath. You know, I believe, I take God at his word. The Bible says that Enoch was translated and he had this uh, testimony that he should not see death and was not found because he had translated. Notice the word translation, uh, translated is three times in that verse five. Translated is the same word as caught up or being translated, transfigured before the Lord, being changed. The word, the, verse five says that he would not see death. Well, if he would not see death, why is he going to see death later? Scripture is very clear. If we're taken to go to heaven and not see death, I don't think God's going to bring us back to earth and kill us. You see, Hebrews 9.27 is a principle. It's not a must. Hebrews 9.27 is a principle. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So, well, that just means everybody's got to die, wants to die. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a principle. If the Lord doesn't change it, every man will die because he's appointed to die once and after this the judgment. You say, well, that once, you know, everybody's got to be die once. Well, I think Lazarus got cheated because he had to die twice. I think little Tabitha got cheated because she had to die twice. I think the young man, the satyrian's boy, died, got cheated because he had to die twice. And I think we as a church of Jesus Christ, if we have to come back and die, we're actually caught up to be with Jesus, translated in the presence of God, and we don't see death as the Scripture says, Paul said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye there in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be changed. I think we'd be very much cheated to be forced to come back here and die. That's not the principle. The principle is in Hebrews 9, 27, that that is a standard. 
It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this to judgment. Now let me, that pie and ice cream really sounds good right now. Because we'll still be friends. We might get together and hold hands and say, why can't we still be friends? But you know, I don't even know that song, but it's going through my head a little bit. Anyway, um, there's some things about Enoch, and, and I'll give you the reasons why I believe that it's not Enoch. So, well, do you believe it's Zerubbabel or Joshua? Do you believe it's uh, John on the Isle of Patma? Who do you believe it is? Well, I'll tell you in a minute because I want that pie to taste better tonight when we're done, if you disagree. But Enoch, and we're trying to get you Enoch inoculated here. You need to be a knocked. All of us need to be like a knock. We need to walk with God so that when the Lord comes, we won't die. We'll be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. We need to be like a knock. We need to walk with God because there's coming a judgment and we can be caught up before the judgment flood or the judgment of God. We can be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Enoch is a picture of the church. If Enoch is a picture of the church or a type of the church, then that tells me that Enoch does not have to die. Because we don't have to. If we're caught up today, we wouldn't have to die. So, let me say some things about Enoch. Enoch was not of this world. Let me clarify that. Enoch was not of this world that we live in. This created world that we live in, Enoch was not of this world. He was of the world before the flood. We as Christians, we are not of this world. Just like Enoch, we are not of this world. Our world is heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Not only is Enoch not of this world, but Enoch was not under the law. The law had not been given yet. So Enoch was not under the law. It was before the law. And you as Christians, we're not under the law either. The law is the schoolmaster bringing us to Christ. The law says we've doomed, we've had it, we need Christ. But after we come to Jesus Christ, that law of God is performed out of our heart and we're changed by creatures of Christ and we're not under the law as Apostle Paul very eloquently declared. We're not under the law. We're not under the law like the Jewish race. We are, and Enoch was not under the law. He was before the law. This is good stuff. The third thing, Enoch was not a Jew. Enoch was a Gentile. And for the people of Israel to accept the two witnesses, they both had to be a Jew. Enoch is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Enoch was translated, seen that three times in verse 5 of Hebrews 11. He was translated that he should not see death. So I believe, I'm going to cast my lot, that Enoch is not one of the two witnesses. I'm going to say quickly that Elijah is, and I'm going to say quickly that Zerubbabel isn't, and Joshua isn't, and John the Baptist isn't, and John on the Isle of Patmos is not. I'm going to cast my lot that the other witness is Moses. Let me explain that to you. I think we got Bible for this. Moses, notice it says that the city of Jerusalem was like what? Egypt. Called the city Egypt. Well, who did his best work in Egypt? Moses. Right? Now, notice this. The Bible says that these two witnesses in verse 6, these have power to shut up heaven. Who did that? Elijah did that. Remember? Shut up waters. Elijah stopped the rain. Did it not rain? They had power to turn waters, turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses. There's no record that Elijah turned water into blood, but there is a record 
that Moses turned water into blood. There's no record that Enoch turned anything into blood or, or uh, did any um, of these uh, stopping the rain. So here we have a description. These two turn waters into blood and smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Who did that? Moses. Ten plagues of Egypt. So if I'm going to cast my vote, I've got to vote that the two witnesses is Elijah and Moses. But the apple pie and the gooseberry pie and the ice cream will be delicious sitting beside you if you disagree with me. We'll still be friends. Amen? Hello. And so I'm grateful for the fact that Elijah is coming back and he's going to be preaching and Enoch is, he's already with the Lord and I, I believe that Enoch is a picture of the church. Now, Moses, and, and there's another reason. You say, well, Enoch didn't die. I know, and there's a whole bunch of us not going to die. I mean, there's millions of us that when the Lord comes, we are not going to die physically. So, psst, Hebrews 9.27 don't apply. So Enoch is the type of the church. He's taken before the judgment, and we will be taken before the judgment to be free through the blood of Jesus Christ. Moses we're told that when he went up on Mount Nebo or up there, Mount Pisgah, looked across at the Canaan land. Remember, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. But in the 17th chapter of Matthew, Moses got to come to the promised land. On the Mount Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses was there, and they were discussing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mount Transfiguration, kind of the same word that Enoch had. And so Moses and Elijah comes down, and they talk to Jesus about the end-time events. Now, Elijah's taken up in a whirlwind to be with God. I don't believe Elijah went to heaven. We say heaven, but I don't believe that because Jesus Christ said in the third chapter of St. John, no one has ascended up into heaven. But he that came down from heaven, speaking of himself. So I don't know where Elijah was, but he wasn't in heaven at that time. Saints went to the paradise side. That's probably where he was kept. He didn't die. Moses did die when he went up on Mount Pisgah. The Bible says that when he went up there, God told him, I'll let you look, but you can't go into the promised land. So his ministry was cut short. Moses' ministry was cut short. Elijah's ministry was cut short too. So how, do you, how, how can you say Elijah's ministry was cut short? Remember Elijah under the juniper tree, pouting? Oh, I'm the only one left. Just kill me, Lord. And he's running from Jezebel. Jezebel wants to kill him. He's running from Jezebel. And now he says, God, just kill me. Well, if he wanted killed, killed. If he wanted killed, he could have stayed down there to Jezebel. Women's killed a many a man. Don't worry about that. I got one amen. You know, the truth is women live longer usually than men. Not always, but usually women live longer than men. There may be a reason for that. I'm going to go on. But notice that Moses, when he went up on Mount Pisgah, there Nebo, that I believe God just smothered him with Holy Ghost kisses. I mean, just, just smothered him with death with Holy Ghost kisses. And the Bible says that God buried him in an unknown grave that no one knows to this day where Moses is at. But in the book of Jude, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, is wanting to have the body of Moses. And Michael shows up and says, ah, 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 ah. You can't have the body of Moses. 
Well, why did the devil want the body of Moses? Probably because he knew God wasn't done with it yet. And Michael, how many know Michael could have mopped up the devil easy? I mean, Michael's that guy, I think, that stood on land and the sea in the 10th chapter of Revelation. I think Michael is the warring angel. He is the angel of combat. He's the warring angel. He's the war, war angel of Israel. And so Michael says, I don't, you know, I, the Lord rebuke you. So if you're going to fight with the devil, make sure the Lord's in between you and the devil because you, you're no match for the devil. But Michael, I think, was a match. But I think Michael just said to the devil, I'm not, you know, I'm not even going to entertain you. Lord, take care of you. You're nothing. The Lord rebuke you. Don't mean that Michael was scared. It just meant that Michael says, the Lord sent me here, and you know best, keep your hands off the dead body of Moses. Now, I have some thoughts about the dead body of Moses. We'll pick up, I'm out of time, but we'll pick up the seventh trumpet in just a little bit. Um, I say a little bit next Sunday. We'll pick up the seventh trumpet at the end. But I want to share a couple things with you real quick, and then we'll wrap this up. Are you learning? Is this helping you? I hope it's helping you. Um, Moses, remember Moses, when he died, his natural abate, uh, forces did not abate. His eyesight was perfect. Remember when Moses died, he came down off the mountain, he was glowing. Because he'd been in the presence of God. This is my own personal opinion, and I realize opinions are like armpits. Everybody got them, and they all stink. But anyway, this is my personal opinion. I don't think Moses could have died. Physically. Because I believe that Moses spent so much time in the presence of God that Moses could not have died. That it took God smothering him with Holy Ghost kisses to put him to sleep, to have him die. I believe he was in perfect health. And it may be that his body will not decompose because he spent time with God so much. And that may be another reason Lucifer, the devil, wanted the body of Moses. Now, let's get something real down in our head. When the two witnesses show up, they're not going to be born. I mean, Elijah's not going to be born of a, a virgin and laid in a, 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 a blackberry patch. When Moses comes, he's not going to be born. That's reincarnation. He's not going to be born and laid in a I don't know, a Nile River, a little ark. When Moses and Elijah show up, they'll show up in full-blown body. They'll show up in the body that they left earth on with. They're not going to be born and grow into it. They're going to show up. And I mean, no, they will certainly show up. When they show up, they show up. They'll stand out like a sore thumb. And they will be incredible, covered with sackcloth, and they'll be preaching now, quickly, where it says that they, fire came out of their mouth, I watched a movie one time, and I thought, boy, this is not very, you know, this is just not very right. I watched a movie about Elijah and, and Moses, and the movie had Moses as a person. And, and someone made Elijah mad, and he, and fire came out of Elijah's mouth and just burned them to crispy critters. You know, it was gone. That was in the movie makes good Hollywood production. Moses gets mad and he opens up his mouth and, 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 and wasps come out and bees come out and they come out of his mouth. And I'm thinking, okay, Indiana Jones stuff. You know, the mummy has arrived. Let's get real. Let's get real. How did Elijah call far out of heaven? Didn't come out of his mouth. He cried to God and God sent the fire. That's how it'll be. How did Moses send the pestilence? He didn't, he didn't send them out of his mouth. Cried out to God, stretched forth the rod, and God sent the pestilence. That's how it will be. It won't be some Indiana Jones Rescue the Ark movie. It'll be real, be powerful, and incredible. Amen. 
I said I'd close with this, and, I, and I'm doing this because I want to really shake you up. Have I shook you up yet? Here it is. I know I have because there's pepper coming out of your salt shaker instead of salt. Here it is. Some Bible scholars believe that the book of Revelation is in two parts. I don't hold this belief. I don't adhere to this. You say, well, why are you sharing it? Because I want you to be as, as up on whatever because you're going to hear people eventually share this with you. They believe that the 11th, chapter 1 through 11 is the first part of the message of Revelation. They believe chapter 12 on is the second part of the message of Revelation, but both is the same message. In other words, Revelation's only 11 chapters. 11 in the front, 11 in the back. There's people that believe that. And the reason they believe that is because in chapter 12, it starts with the birth of Jesus Christ. In chapter 12, it starts with Jesus being born and the dragon trying to stop him. Then it escalates into the seven vows and seven trumpets. Why did you tell me this, preacher? Because I want you disturbed as much as I was when I heard it. I, you know, we got a good, strong church here. And our church, if there's one thing I can say about Ozark Full Gospel Church, we got some people that's on the meat. We've got some people that know the word. We've got people that enjoy the word. You come because you want to hear the word. You come because the word of God is alive in your life. And, and I know that me sharing that with you will just give you some thoughts. And, and you'll probably hear some people talk about it. But I don't believe that because I believe chapter 10 and 11 and 12 are parenthetical chapters. You say, well, it's a parenthetical chapter. It is. The movie's going and they cut in and said, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Susie's breaking a horse or fell off a horse and broke her leg. Something's happening while other things are happening. That's a parenthetical chapter. We come to the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is going to release the seven vows and the last woe. And this thing's escalating. I know I've got to stop, and some of you have already your, your blessed assurance already took most of what you can today. But hear me. Someone said your mind can take in more than your blessed assurance can endure. But anyway, and that's true. Great writers, I'm not a great writer, but great writers know that when you write a story, you bring them up to the cliff or you bring them up to the most exciting part, and then you back off and start in again. Good movie writers know that when you bring forth a story that's going to excite people, you go right up to the edge and get everybody, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they say, next week we'll talk about it. That's what the seventh trumpet is. It's a back off to say, this is going to climax, and then it'll shift to chapter 12. And here we go again. We're climbing up the roller coaster. We'll go down again. That kind of explains the seventh trumpet pretty much. And so I um, hope you enjoyed today. I hope, I hope you've learned. And um, I want to encourage you today to make sure that you make Jesus your personal Savior. I was 14 years old, six-day war. It lasted six days, of course, and 1967. And I was 14, riding a bike. I wouldn't listen to the news. But the Jewish people killed over 20,000 Arabi Arabians, and it shocked the world. And they took the Temple Mount... Pay attention.
pay attention. Because what's going over there on right now, what's going on in America right now, what's going on in the world we know, what's going on in politics, what's going on in the other countries is a sure signal that our Lord's coming soon. Keep your eyes open. Be attentive. At 14, I wasn't. And I missed probably one of the most beautiful prophecies that had ever been given apart from Israel becoming a nation. When that minister of defense gave the authority back to the Muslims, it was all God's plan for Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. All God's plan. Josh going to come and bring a song. Pay attention. Pay attention. I'm not saying pay attention to the news. They lie. But pay attention to what's going on in other countries. I got so tickled. Was it Spain or Dutch or the one having the farmer crisis? Dutch. I got tickled with them. You know, they're overtaxing them. They can't raise crops, and they got mad. So they got their manure spreaders and drove them to the capital or wherever it was, and they blowed manure all over the law keepers, the lawmakers, just blew manure everywhere. I thought, now that's a great comeback. That is a great comeback. Them politicians have been blowing manure for years by the time they get a little manure on them. Amen. Stand with me. Them farmers said, We'd, we would much rather be at home growing our crops, but we can't afford to because of the taxes. Did you know that's going to affect our groceries in our, in our grocery store? What's going on over there is going to affect our food. What's going on in politics is going to affect our food. There is plagues coming. And let me tell you something, if, if, if this uh, uh, COVID-19 didn't get your attention, you're pretty much graveyard dead. All the rules and all the guidelines, if that didn't get your attention, you're just sheep led to the slaughter. You need to wake up and realize that we are truly at the edge of the return of Jesus Christ. We're so close, so exciting. Amen? Praise the Lord. Give an invitation.